Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Today, today's message, Responding to Personal Revival. And so as we get started this morning, I just want to ask you, play a little game with me. In your mind, you don't have to yell back your responses, but it'll be a response game. And the game will be, I'll say, how would you respond if, and I'll give you a scenario. And you, thinking about what you know about yourself already to be true, how you've responded to things in the past, maybe think about, how would I respond in that scenario? So, first one's an easy one. How would you respond if you were doing a home improvement project, and you went to Lowe's or Home Depot, and you're loading wood into your car, and you crack your own windshield? Because I did that this week. (laughs) You'd laugh at me. I don't know what you'd do if it was you. But it made sense because we were, in, we were having staff chapel about a week ago and our executive pastor was speaking and he said, share something with the whole staff that they don't already know about you. And I was thinking, well, I've been doing these carpentry projects around my house and replacing a bunch of rotted wood on the back deck and it's using a saw and wood and the church knows what I'm like and it's all been successful. I don't have any sermon illustrations. So I was bragging about it a little bit to our staff. The Bible says pride goes before the fall. So a few days later, I'm at Lowe's, I've got the seat folded down, I'm trying to wedge some wood into the, I'm like, if I get it up on the dashboard, I can get it in there further. <laughs> no! How would you respond? Can't be mad at the wood, right? Like, it's like, I'm the idiot. I'm the only one involved here. How would you respond if someone that you had a falling out with, maybe it was a coworker, teammate, friend, roommate, spouse, parent, sought reconciliation with you. Maybe you think it's too far gone. I was reading a story this week about these two brothers in Canada, and they were in the same church. They were arguing over the music program, which is interesting when you read church stories. A lot of times it's about music for some reason. And uh, these two brothers were both in the program. They were arguing with each other for 13 years, hadn't spoken in two years. And a pastor and a deacon took one of the brothers down in the basement, confronted him about his attitude, and uh, he repented, brought the other brother down, and he confessed, sought reconciliation. The one brother looked at him and said, it's about time. <laughs> How would you respond? It was interesting in that story, the pastor and the deacon didn't start pleading with them to reconcile with one another. Instead, they started praying to God. And God broke through. And those brothers reconciled. And the church said you could hear them in the basement, weeping and praying. They came up that night, shared the testimony of the reconciliation, uh, they were involved in music and started traveling around to different churches telling their story. Led to revival in Canada. The revival of 1971, if you want to look it up. Started with just two brothers in their relationship. You never know how your responses are going to impact people. How would you respond if you were reading your Bible and God started to reveal himself? Because that's what the Bible is. It's his revelation of himself. So you're reading your Bible and you start, God starts to reveal himself different than what you've been taught at your church. In fact, what you read about salvation actually ends up being even different than what you've taught, been taught at your church. Would you have the courage to believe different? Would you have the courage to change the way you respond to God as a result? Would you have the courage to confront your church? That's what happened in 1517 when a guy named Martin Luther was reading his Bible and realized what he'd been being taught in church and seminary was wrong and confronted the corruption of Catholicism, selling their indulgences, and the way that they held the Bible back from the people so they wouldn't be able to see the Bible themselves. And, and the salvation was actually making a decision to follow Christ by faith alone, and it wasn't a dripping that maybe if you do enough stuff and you do enough works that maybe one day it'll all work out. 
It led to Reformation revival amongst churches. How would you respond? And so today I want to ask you this question as we open up a passage of Scripture in the prophet Isaiah. How would you respond if God, and we've read this passage, rendered the heavens of your heart, opened the eyes of your heart, and you saw him differently, and you saw yourself differently, and he called you, he put a calling on your life as a result. The passage we're going to look at is in Isaiah chapter 6. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn with me. We'll put some verses on the screen, the ones I read, but it's always good to have your Bible so you can see all of what's going on in the context, because this church is a dangerous place, because you get this one guy who stands up on a stage, you can grab a Bible verse, rip it out of context, say whatever you want about it. So if you have a copy of the Bible, you can look down and go, what that guy's saying is not what this says, so it's good to bring your Bibles. Bring your Bibles, and I'm planning on saying what it says, that's my plan, that's my hope. But it's good for you to be able to check that. And so we got some Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, um, you can grab a copy. But Isaiah chapter 6, what's been happening is for five chapters, Isaiah has been preaching to the nation. Scholars debate about whether this is in chronological order or not. It doesn't matter. The argument is being made here. He puts a sixth chapter where he does for a reason. And so you can read the first five chapters. He's talking about how wicked this nation is. And he uses prophetic language when he says, woe. It's a, it's a cursing. Judgment upon you is what woe means. It says, woe to you who are wise in your own eyes. It's chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Sound familiar? But in chapter 6, he doesn't talk about the nation. He talks about his own personal revival. And what we see in chapter 6, all 13 verses, are three movements of personal revival. And that will be the outline today, by the way, those of you who like to take notes or write things down. And the first one's verses 1 through 4. And what happens is personal revival begins with an accurate revelation of God. And that's what we see when he sees the Lord. Then verses 5 through 7, we see the next movement. The next movement, what happens is personal revival leads to an accurate revelation of self. And then what we see in the end of the chapter, verses 8 through 13, is that that personal revival results in where it ends at is responding to God's call in our lives. So let's look at the first movement here in verses 1 through 4. In Isaiah chapter 6, he's been speaking to the nation, but then he gives this historical marker. In the year that King Uzziah died, and if you just read in your devotions and your Bible and your own personal Bible reading time, kind of skim past that. We'll come back to that. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train, or some of your translators say a hem of his garment, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, 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 we sang that this morning, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Here you have a unique passage of scripture. It happens in a few places in the Bible. Daniel does it, Ezekiel does it. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation does it, but transports us from this place and all of our busyness and the tyranny of the urgent and all of the stressors that happen and takes us right into the throne room of God. And we get a glimpse of what's actually happening in heaven. And that's what happens for Isaiah in his own personal revival. And what we see is that personal revival begins with an accurate revelation of God. 
And that's good because a lot of us have misconceptions about God. Maybe because of our background. Some of you grew up in a really legalistic background. It was all about keeping the rules and our tendency is to swing the pendulum. So then God's just cool with everything. And we go like ultra grace, cheap grace is what that ends up becoming. Some of you grew up in a really like everything's cool. And so you swing the pendulum the other way. And it's like, I got to do all this stuff. God's holy and just. And so I better obey all the rules and swing the pendulum this way. Some of us are just kind of in this consumer culture. And we treat God like he's out there to be our personal assistant. You know, do our bidding. We pray, we pray almost like God's on a customer service line. Think about that. Press one for cheap grace. Press two to affirm your political beliefs. Press three to, I don't know, vent frustrations. How you want God to change your neighbor? And we take these things like God's on this customer service line for us. What we need is an accurate, if we're ever going to have a revival, we need an accurate picture of who God is. That's what happens for Isaiah here. Think about how easy it would have been to him. I live with these people. They're calling evil good and good evil. And how easy it would have been for him to be self-righteous. But he gives this accurate picture of God. Look what happens. We get the historical marker that starts in at the very beginning of verse 1. Isaiah 6, 1. We'll call it 6, 1a just because it's the first part. And the year the king Uzziah died. Easy just to read past that, right? Like, who's Uzziah? If you want to know more about King Uzziah... Go read 2 Chronicles chapter 26, and you'll get as much as you want to know about King Uzziah. Here's the gist of it. He was, for the most part, he was a good king. He didn't end well, but for the most part, he was a good king. And, and the land was prosperous, and you could kind of coast if King Uzziah was on the throne, because you could trust in King Uzziah. He reigned for 52 years. Put that in perspective. Like, that's not just a historical fact. That means for everyone here that's younger than 52 years old, that might be the only king you would have known. And then he dies. And some historians believe that Isaiah the prophet was actually blood relatives to Uzziah the king. This is a crisis. For Isaiah, it might even be a personal crisis. Here's just a spiritual truth. This is like bonus material for you today. Crisis tend to bring clarity. Crisis in a spiritual perspective tend to bring clarity in our lives of what really matters. The tyranny, the urgent kind of fades away. And here, Isaiah is in a crisis, and we see this a lot of times in the Bible. What you see is that, the, that it's almost like a precursor to personal revival is a crisis. Like, think about the Apostle Paul. Before he goes and plants churches, not only does he have the Damascus Road experience, but remember what happens before that. He's got these scales on his eyes. He's physically blinded. Crisis oftentimes precedes clarity. You got Peter. Peter, before he preaches on the day of Pentecost, the revived church denies Jesus crisis before clarity. Moses, 40 years in the desert. Like you can go through these different people in the Bible, and you see this repeatedly. Here for Isaiah, you see it happening. And if you read historically, I was reading one author this week talking about the first great awakening I've mentioned a few times in this series, and we attribute that to great preaching by guys like Jonathan Edwards and George, John Wesley and different George Whitfield. There's all these just big names out there. But Jonathan Edwards, when he talks about it, he talks about how the, the, the time was degenerate spiritually. Like we always think, like back in the day, and people went to church, people loved Jesus. That was not true. That's a false image that's being painted. Jonathan Edwards talks about what it was really like. And you know what actually happened? It wasn't just his powerful preaching. He read all of his sermons. He was kind of boring. What happened was in a town real, real close by, two young people died suddenly. And a bunch of the debauchery and stuff, stopped because people started thinking about their eternal destinies. They started going to church and Edwards preached a sermon. Six people trusted Christ in a sermon. And then within six months, 300 people 
in a town of 1,100 had trusted Christ as their Savior. Crisis oftentimes precedes clarity and personal revival. And that's what's happening here for Isaiah. So don't just read past that. And the, there's a reason why the author wrote down, and the year that this happened when Isaiah was going through a personal crisis. And the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah says, saw, it doesn't say God, it says the Lord. And we know when we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 41, this is actually the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus on the throne. This isn't God the Father. This is Jesus on the throne. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. And then you think about what he saw here. And we'll read this passage together again in just a second. But I want, how many of you here have ever been to uh, Times Square in New York City? Been to Times Square? A good amount of you have been here before, been there? Isn't that like sensory overload? The sights and the sound. My wife and I went there one time before we had kids. We're staying in this hotel. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. And I said, let's go get some street food. Lots of bad things with that, okay? Like I'm not saying you should do that. That dietary bad thing, bad decision, get some sleep. Like lots of bad stuff. But we went out there. It's really the city that doesn't sleep. They were filming a Tom Hanks movie. It hadn't snowed, but they put fake snow all along the streets. There were cars everywhere for the scene that they were taping. The street vendors were cooking their food. And if you've ever been there, those of you who haven't been there, there's these just screams everywhere. And so you've got smells and things you can feel and the sounds and the lights. What Isaiah describes here, he talks, it's sensory overload. In fact, you go to some of these other passages of Scripture, like in Revelation chapter 4, when, when John talks about he was invited to come into the throne room. There's always a throne. Come into the throne room. He describes the colors that are there. He says words like carnelian and jasper, and there's a rainbow around the throne that's an emerald rainbow, and there's peals of thunder, there's rumblings happening, lightnings coming from the throne. There's a sea of crystal in front of the throne. Like it's visual overload. He can't even describe all of it. And Isaiah says here, I saw the Lord. Did you notice his position? Seated on the throne? That's interesting. Because Isaiah was going through a personal crisis. And while he was in crisis here on earth, there was not a crisis in heaven. See, Jesus is never looking down at the things that are happening in our lives and going, oh, what am I going to do? He's seated on the throne. When your bank account's empty, he's on the throne. When you lose your job, he's on the throne. Your marriage's falling apart, he's on the throne. Jesus is, you want an accurate picture of who he is? He's not waiting for you to call customer service. He's sovereignly ruling the universe. And he can take your crisis. Sometimes your crisis is sin. And sin's ruling in your life. He can overrule that. Sometimes your crisis is a result of other people's sin. Things have happened in your life. He can take even that and use it for good. Look at the cross of Christ. So we don't lack crisis here in our world. Just thinking about, like, some of you don't get to see the prayer requests that come in. Our elders and pastors, our prayer team, we get these, there's little cards on the back of the seats. And if somebody wants to be baptized, if you want to get baptized, you fill it out. Somebody trusts Christ as their Savior. But then regular attenders, members, a lot of times will submit their prayer requests that way. And you wouldn't believe, especially since we've been doing this series on revival, which I don't know what the correlation is there, the heaviness of some of the prayer requests that have come in. I asked some of the folks if I could share some of them with you. We have one young lady that submitted a prayer request, and she was being admitted to a, a mental hospital, and she was having questions about God and her faith, and she wants as many people as possible praying for her. 
Some of you remember if you were here, uh, I don't know, two months ago, John Reeves, one of our elders, stood up on stage and said, if you, have, if you want to be prayed for for physical healing, we have people anoint you with oil. It was a, you don't ever miss a Sunday. You never know what's going to happen. People were lined up everywhere to be healed. And that day, John Reeves' own kidneys weren't working. He didn't know it. And went to the hospital a few days later. And has got a kidney issue, an immunity issue that's going on. Please pray for John Reeves. He's got a, a, a young father. His name is Sean, Sean Green. And uh, his son's a cancer survivor. And he's got kidney dialysis that's happening, Sean does, on a regular basis. There's a gentleman, uh, Jamie Dillingham. He'll, he'll be here in the next service. You see him coming in. He'll have sunglasses on. He sits in the back with sunglasses because, because of his chemo and his cancer. He's got this sensitivity to light. There's only one seat he can sit in in our auditorium. And that's just a few. That doesn't talk about he's got depression. He said we could share that, and you pray for him. There's a lot of people with anxiety and depression and divorce and diseases, and there's Lots of stuff happening. God's still sitting on his throne. He may use your crisis to bring some spiritual clarity. What he wants to do is reveal himself to you. Maybe not as the God you've always thought about, but of who he truly is. And so here Isaiah, the guy who's been preaching about him, he sees him. He says, I saw him. He's sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. That's he's exalted, he's authoritative, he's sovereign. And then, then did you see what else is? The hem of his garment, just the hem, just the train of his robe fills the entire temple. It shows his splendor, shows his glory. But then he describes, he can't even describe Jesus. So he describes instead these other beings. Seraphim, these angels that are there, only place in Scripture that they're mentioned right here. The word seraphim literally in Hebrew means to burn. Some people believe that these were flaming angels. They were on fire, continually angels, flying around the throne. But it doesn't say here how many there are. Now, some people believe they're the same creatures that are described in Revelation chapter 4, and they're called the four living creatures. So maybe there's four of these seraphim around the throne, trying to picture this scene, trying to imagine what this looked like. But if you read Revelation chapter 5, we read in verse 11... There are myriads upon myriads. That means there's innumerable numbers of angels that are there. But there's these four. And you get the picture of what you see, the the rainbow and the sea of crystal. And Jesus is sitting on the throne. And there's these angels. They've got six wings. They can't even look at Jesus. He's too glorious. He dwells in unapproachable light. So they're covering their face and they're covering their feet and they're flying around with two wings. And that's just what you see. You haven't talked about what you feel. The whole place trembles. Smoke that you might smell. But what do you hear? Look at what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy. <laughs> that's interesting. I bet if you asked people that aren't in this service today, Christians, not Christians, whatever, tell me one attribute of God. Love grace, truth, mercy, probably not wrath, probably not justice, probably not holiness. But here, that's what they're saying, and here it says it three times. That's interesting because in Hebrew, that's how you emphasize things, was repeating them. Like we, we put something in bold or italics in an email, right, or write in a paper, or if you're text messaging, you put it in all caps. Unless you're really old, I guess you put everything in all caps. Young people are like, why are you yelling? Stop. 
I texted my wife yesterday in all caps, not to look at social media. I didn't want to know the outcome of a football game. She's like, you scared me with the all caps. I actually put fear into her in that. In Hebrew, you repeat it. That's why Jesus says sometimes, truly, truly, I say to you. Verily, verily. Amen, amen. It's all the same word. Everything Jesus said was true. He's saying it because he wants you to pay attention. Pay attention. Listen to this. But you don't see things said three times. No other characteristic of God in the Bible except for this one. And in the Old Testament, here. Holy, holy, holy. So what does that mean? What does that mean that he's holy? I know some of you have been around church for a little while, and you might think to yourself, well, holy means he's pure. It means that he doesn't sin. Okay, well, let me back up and remind you who's saying this. It's the seraphim. These angels haven't sinned. Do you think the angels are flying around and singing continually? You're just like me, Jesus. We're just, we're the, see that? We're the same. There's a reason they're covering their face. There's a reason they're covering their feet. And it's not because they're the same as Jesus. But the angels were morally pure. The angels had never sinned. So holiness means more than just that. What is holiness? I'll read this quote to you from John Piper. John Piper, talking about the holiness of God, says this. He, talking about God, is not holy because he keeps the rules. And I love this line. He wrote the rules. God's not holy because he keeps the law. The law is holy because it reveals God. God is absolute. Everything else is derivative. So think about that. Those of you who know the story of Moses and Exodus 3, and he's getting sent by God to go and share with the people, lead the people out of bondage, share with the people who he is, that he's a God over all the false gods of Egypt, and he's going to reveal all those things. And Moses says, what's your name? Who should I say sent me? And God says, I am. In other words, I'm not defined by anything in creation. Everything in creation is defined by me. It's derivative from me. I do not derive any meaning from it. I am altogether different. The word holy just in and of itself just means set apart. And so his holiness of God is this. It's everything that he is. It's every characteristic of God wrapped into one word. It's every work of God, every miracle he's ever done wrapped into one word. And they're repeating it and they're saying, you are different than us. Holy, holy, you are sovereign. I can't even control my temper. You are pure. I'm, I'm lustful, angry, jealous, envious, like pick, pick a sin. You are gracious. I'm entitled. Like, he is different than us in every way. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And did you read the next one? The earth is full of his glory. The earth is full of the glory of God. Please, Brad. <laughs> Last week, I had my buddy come and preach here. Those of you who weren't here, he's from Dallas. And when I pulled on the campus here, he couldn't believe how beautiful our church campus was. Uh, it was incredible uh, to see all the trees and all that stuff. They don't have trees. Dallas is great, okay? They got great food, lots of stuff to do there. It's ugly. Sorry if you're from Dallas. It's a concrete jungle. It is flat. And we came in, he saw that. And so after I was coming out of church on Tuesday night, I think it was, or Wednesday night, I can't remember what it was, I was leaving the office. It was like 5, 5.30. And I was just with my iPhone, pulled out, took a picture, a couple pictures, and texted them to him, put them up here on the screen. 
That's our parking lot. There's another, I think there's another one of the, over the buildings. Yeah, that's the sky. I am not a professional photographer. I'm not looking for the most beautiful place in the entire world to take a picture of. But can I tell you something? The heavens declare the glory of God. The problem is with our sinful heart. Romans chapter 1 tells us that we worship creation rather than the creator. But all the stuff in creation, even in the crisis when God's judging sin or God's redeeming from sin, even in the most difficult stuff, i.e. the cross, the greatest sin that ever happened, God uses for your greatest good, it all points to the glory of God. But we go to the creation. I remember, I think it was Paul David Tripp I first heard use this illustration. He said he was taking his family on a family vacation and going to Disney. And he said, when you're coming into Disney, there are signs that point you into Disney. He said, what if I pulled off to the side of the road and I I set up camp and we spent our entire vacation by one of the signs? That's what it's like when we worship the creation. It's like you're missing out. It's actually just, all that is is a pointer. It's a pointer to God and his glory. And that's what the angels are singing continually for all eternity. The heaven is filled with your glory. The earth is filled with your glory. Holy, holy, holy. Do you see him? He's different than us. Jesus is not your homeboy. He's not customer service. He's not just cool with all kinds of sin that's going on. He's not all cosmic killjoy. He's altogether different than us. Holy. And then verse 4 said, And the foundations of the threshold shook. Can you feel it? At the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The first movement, a personal revival, is an accurate revelation of God. The second one is an accurate revelation of self. Look at verse 5. And I said, he doesn't say anything about those people in the first five chapters. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. Some of your translations say ruined or undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In Scripture, like the best thing that can be said to you is blessing. Blessed are you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, Matthew 5, 3. The end of our services, a lot of times we'll do a benediction. One of them that we'll use is from number six, ironic blessing over the people of Israel. Lord, bless you and keep you. Let his face shine upon you and give you his peace. It's a blessing, pronouncing a blessing. The worst thing that can be said to you is woe. I'm not saying catch the woe. I'm not saying like, hey, hey, hold up. It's not that. Woe is prophetic language for condemnation upon you, judgment on you, heaped upon you. He said it in the first five chapters. Woe, these people, judgment. They think that evil is good and good is evil. Judge them, condemnation on them. This is dangerous, Jesus says to the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup, but your heart hasn't been dealt with. Judgment's coming upon you. It's a warning. Here he doesn't say woe to the people. He says woe to me. Why? Why does he say that? Here's why. Because holiness leads to humility. There's nowhere in the Scriptures that you see someone get an accurate picture of who God is that walks away cocky. Never do you see somebody get an accurate picture of God and then go, you know what? Those people out there, they really are sinful. Holiness leads to humility. It's humbling to come into the presence of a holy God. Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man, Peter says in the boat. John, before, before he goes into the throne room of God, falls down when he sees Jesus Christ as though dead. 
There's a story in the, in the Gospels where the disciples are in a boat and there's a storm. There's a couple of those. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. And Jesus is asleep in the boat. Isn't that wild, by the way, about him sitting on the throne? The crisis going on in your life and he's not stressed out. Doesn't mean he doesn't care. But that's what they think. Have you read it? Have you read that story where they're in the boat? It's in Mark. And then Jesus is sleeping and there's a storm. These are professional fishermen. They're freaking out. They're crying like little girls, okay? <laughs> and then they go to Jesus. Do you know what they say? Don't you care? Don't you care? We're about to die. Do you not care? You're sleeping. Jesus gets up and he says, peace, be still. And the whole thing's like glassy water. And then do you know what, they, what happens after that? What Jesus says, what they say? Like, I'm going to tell you, you need to read it. Look at this. Mark chapter 4, verse 40 and 41. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Now, wait a minute. This is after the storm. Water's done. No storm happening here. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. But wait, this is after the storm. Did you get that part? And said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were terrified in the storm. They were more afraid after the storm. They were more afraid of the guy inside the boat than they were the storm outside the boat. Because they had come into contact with the holiness of God. See, holiness leads to humility. For you to feel convicted of your sin, I don't need to tell you how heinous your deeds are. You just need to see how holy your God is. Because when you get an accurate picture of who God is, it reveals yours. I am, you and I, we're not the same. I'm in trouble. What do I do? And there's conviction that happens. But conviction should lead to confession. And that's what he's doing here when he says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't know what that means. I don't know why he doesn't say unclean heart. Maybe because like Jesus says, what comes out of, what's in the heart comes out of your mouth. Maybe. I don't know if that's the explanation. Maybe he's used his same mouth that he's preaching to people with to do self-promotion. Prideful statements. Slander others. Speak ill of someone that he didn't have the right to speak ill of. I don't know. I don't know what it means. Maybe he cursed. So I'm a man. But he's confessing sin here. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He could have said he could have said, but I'm not as bad as those people. <laughs> That's like how we do it, right? Like ranking. Everyone here would probably say, because you're American, it's an American thing to say, I'm not perfect. The next word, but, but, right? And that's key. But, and then maybe you have a ranking system. It has Mother Teresa on it or Billy Graham or some cannibalistic serial killer. Like, I don't know who's on your list. Or maybe you just say, but I've never killed anyone. That's a common one. Moses did. Is he closer with God than you? Spoke his face to face. Maybe your scale is off. Maybe you're not comparing to the right things. Like if you stand next to a mountain, you know what you feel like? Small. If you're in the midst of a fire and a building that's going down, you feel mortal. A shooting at a school like this week, mortal. Isaiah doesn't say here, in the midst of an infinite God, woe to me, I am small. Woe to me, I am mortal. Woe to me, I am one of many sinful people. No. It says, woe to me, when you're next to holiness, it reveals your sinfulness. Woe to me, I'm unclean. 
He's convicted. He confesses. But then here's the scandal. God cleanses. And that's not just an Isaiah thing. 1 John 1, 9. He is faithful and just. You confess your sins, he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And what happens next is one of those burning creatures, verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs. Well, he's on fire. Why can't he just grab it? Because it's holy. Taken from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. It's been paid for. This coal is taken from the altar. The altar, read Leviticus. We don't have time. But in Leviticus chapter 17, read that. The altar is where the substitutionary sacrifices were made. The passage doesn't say it, but I'm going to go with that the guy on the throne is the one that's actually in charge in heaven. And he's the one who called for that, that coal to be taken out. Do you know who he is? Jesus. The one who's your substitutionary sacrifice. On the cross, that's the altar where God's wrath is poured out on the cross in your place so you can be cleansed. Conviction is not where you stay. Conviction should lead to confession. Confession leads to cleansing. He's cleansed. But then he hears this calling. That's the third movement of personal revival is the calling of God. Look at what happens next in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Did you notice this? He heard the voice. He heard the voice. Let me ask you this question. If God called you, would you hear him? We've got so many voices in our world. How do you hear, how can you hear him with all these voices speaking to you? I was at my house the other day and I was talking with my wife and she was in one room and our, the way our house is set up is that I can talk to her in the living room. There's a spot I can stand in, in the kitchen where you can also see into the dining room. And my daughter came up in the dining room. She started talking to me and finally I said, hey, I can't hear either one. You stop. Now my wife wins. Like she just wins because she's my wife. But I was talking to her first too. Like hey, just you talk and then you talk and I can't hear all that at once. And then I started thinking about all the voices we have in our culture. Like, just with your phone. I remember when a phone was only used to call people. That's how old I am. Well, let me blow some of your minds. Some of you have only lived during this time with these cell phones and smartphones and stuff. Um, I remember when there was no caller ID, and if the phone rang and you didn't answer it, you never knew what that was. Right? Like, it could have been your teacher calling to tell about how much trouble you got into that day, or it could have been, like, some lawyer for some, like, uncle that was really rich who's going to give you a million dollars. And you just don't know. You'll never know what that call was about if you didn't answer it. No caller ID, none of that stuff. And then today, like getting dings, something happened in Tokyo. Okay, like I got email to check. Oh, and then there's email. And there's, and there's some lady yelling at a cat. I got to get that. What's that all about? And there's social media. And there's all the, it's like all this stuff calling for our attention just on our phone. Plus TV and marketing and politicians and in your church. Like, would you even know if God called you? There's so many things that are hindering our hearing, and that's a whole sermon series in and of itself. But you go to the New Testament, and do you know what one of the ones that's talked about? I was reading Matthew 13 this morning, the parable of the sower. Do you know what one of the most applicable ones are to us? Prosperity. You can't hear. And you don't, don't raise your hand, I'll ask you this question. I don't want you to embarrass anyone around you. How many of you here, if God did speak to you today, called you out 
you wouldn't respond because you make too much money. Because of what you might lose. You might not get to live here in Raleigh. You might not get to have whatever comforts you're so used to. You answer between you and the Lord. But we don't, we don't need to know. Prosperity? Sin? It's interesting to me that Isaiah, he doesn't hear the call until he experiences the cleansing. He doesn't hear this calling. And notice, this isn't a call to Isaiah. This is a general call. Who will go? Who, who will, we, will we say? Who's speaking here, by the way? Is this the Trinity in the Old Testament? Who will go for us? And then Isaiah said, now this is interesting because remember, his lips have been singed together. Like we read that really quick, symbolically, you know, his lips were touched with his burning coal. Your lips are sensitive. You just kiss people. First thing he gets chapped out in the dry weather, right? His lips. Mmm, go! Like, can you imagine, like, tearing apart? Like, he couldn't hold it in. I'll go. Go where? You don't know. When? He doesn't know. Do what? He doesn't know. Here's why. Isaiah's not responding to the what. He's not surrendering to the when. He's not surrendering to the where. He's surrendering to the who. He had an accurate picture of who God is. And many of us, if God did, I want you to go. Go where? When? And then you're going to evaluate your options, right? It's just who's calling. Will I do whatever you want? Whenever you want? Wherever you want? Am I holding, if I'm holding stuff back, then that's what's hindering me from hearing. Because what ends up happening, we don't have time to dig into the rest of these verses, but I'm, I can't stop at verse 8. Because that's where most preachers stop, and then they'll be like, you've got to surrender everything, and it'll be awesome. Do you know what happens? It's awful. In fact, verses 10 through 13, he says, you're going to go preach. People are going to get hardened hearts. You're going to speak to them that they won't see, and they won't hear, and they're going to come harder to me. And then Isaiah says, how long do I have to do that? And he says, until the judgment comes, until there's no one else to speak to. There'll be a tenth. There'll be a remnant of people that are left. They'll respond. But by all worldly uh, measurements, like Isaiah's never going to end up in like, missionary magazine, missionary of the year. We're not going to tell some story about him leading national revival. That's not what happens with Isaiah. In fact, tradition tells us that he gets sawn in two. He's not successful by our standards, but by God's? There's a reason we're still reading his book 27 centuries later. There were a lot of false prophets that were gathering crowds, telling everybody they were okay when they weren't okay. And then there was Isaiah whatever you want me to do, wherever, however, because I know you. See, it starts with an accurate picture of who God is. Would you respond to his call in your life? His call to come to him as Savior? His call to come to him in your crisis for healing? His call to come to him if you need rest? But it's not just to come to him. Because once you come to him, then he's sent. We have a missionary faith. He's always sending us out. He's sending you out. Some of you, he's sending you simply to invite your neighbor to come to church. Somebody here, he might be sending you to India. There's a lot of unreached people. A lot. Some of you, he might be sending you to leave your job, start your own company as a platform for the gospel. But he's a, it's a sending faith. It's not just come and like, let's all hang out together and everything's good. It's like, no, you come, come and then go. Come, go. Come to Christ, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Spirit and the bride say, come. You want cleansing? Come. Salvation? Come. You be whole? Come. 
but I'm doing it so I can send you back out. Go, go. The heavens declare the glory. The earth is filled with his glory. They all declare the glory, and so should you. And if you don't, the rocks will. Go, go. And so I asked you at the beginning, how will you respond if? Let me ask you again. How will you respond if God reveals himself to you accurately? He has. It's the Bible. How will you respond if God reveals your sin to you? He, he has through his holiness. How will you respond if he has a calling on your life? This is a general call. Who will go? Who will go? Anybody who's saved is sent. Anybody who's saved, if you're going to be obedient, you go. And so we're going to have a response time today. Worship team's going to come. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Some of you need to come to Jesus. You might need healing. You might be in the middle of a crisis. You might need salvation. We're going to have some leaders. They're going to be off to the sides by these pictures. See these pictures on the side? They're going to have some leaders, male and female, standing by them in a little while. If you need to come, then you come. Some of you have things you might need to surrender to God. I just say, come up here in the front and kneel like it's an altar and pray and lay those things down. Nobody will mess with you. Nobody will mess with you there. Or you can kneel down in your seat right where you're at. Just pray. Hand those things over. Some of you have committed your life to Jesus. You're walking with him, but you know there's things hindering you from hearing from him. Then don't leave here because what we see is the more times you don't respond to God's word, you become hardened to him speaking to you. Respond to him. In your seat, up here at the front, however the Lord leads you to do that. But you've got to respond.